Today is our final segment in our sermon series called Future Shock, where we explore the very real effects uh, that our rapidly changing world has on our mental health. In the first sermon, we talked about how adapting to rapidly changing technology affects us. In the second sermon, we talked about how the harms, uh, about the harms of economic uh, disparity. Uh, last week, we explored, of course, how fear and anxiety about climate change can paralyze us. And this week, we will be looking at the ways uh, that the divisions in our society, both all uh, political, tribal, cultural, all these divisions keep us from loving each other as God calls us to do. So today's passage comes from Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And it's kind of a hard passage. It contains some of Jesus' most radical teachings. But before we read it, I want to share a story from a colleague of mine, Amy Butler, who is a senior minister at Riverside Church in New York City. She decided that uh, one day, instead of preaching a sermon about the Sermon on the Mount, she would actually preach the Sermon on the Mount, two full chapters in Matthew, with no breaks. I encourage you all, if you haven't read the full Sermon on the Mount, it's brilliant and challenging. But, but Butler writes that during coffee hour that day, several people came up to her to take issue with parts of that sermon. Two chapters read from the Bible with no breaks. The, butler, the words were not Butler's. They were Jesus's. She says that most of us like certain parts of the Sermon on the Mount, the parts about the lilies of the field and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But there are parts that are hard and are profoundly counter-cultural. And this is one of them. Which brings us to our passage today, Matthew 5, 38 through 48. We'll be reading from Eugene Peterson's The Message version. I chose that so that we might hear it with fresh ears. Here's another old saying that deserves a second look. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat stuff. Live generously. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer. 
for then you are working out of your true selves, your God-created selves. This is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good and bad, the nice and nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any one of the mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Amen. Will you pray with me? Startle us, O God, with your truth and open our minds to your word. Give us courage to think deeply and to make loving and courageous decisions in all the challenges and perplexities of our lives in this world. Remind us again that at the heart of all reality is you and your love revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Why can't we just get along? This might be one of those sermons that raises more questions than it answers, but that is the main question. Why can't we just get along? I mean, I don't have to tell you that we are living in an increasingly divided country and world. And I don't just mean politically, though there's that. I mean we are divided in so many other ways as well. As you know, Congress is currently in disarray and it seems bent on closing down the government. And worse, it sometimes seems to have turned into a carnival show where people humiliate and insult one another for sports. And as we ramp up to another election year here in the US, I don't see that changing anytime soon, do you? We know of the violence that plays out on our city streets where mostly innocent civilians get caught in the crossfire. And as white supremacy makes an ugly comeback, we see horrific hate crimes plotted by radical people. Further abroad, the war in Ukraine rages on, and tens of thousands of Armenians are fleeing their homeland after Azerbaijani uh, aggression. And of course, uh, just this weekend after an attack by Hamas, the Israeli government has declared war in Israel-Palestine, with Prime Minister Netanyahu declaring the enemy will pay the price they have never paid before. God weeps. And here at home, in our own lives, we see that books are being banned and we often can't 
bear the idea of spending one more holiday with Aunt Sally, who has frankly gone all in on the QAnon conspiracy theories. This list is hardly exhaustive, friends, but you get the picture. Why can't we just get along? We become more and more isolated from each other and less and less willing to collaborate to solve the very real problems we face, mostly because we cannot agree on the answers, but sometimes because we're just demonizing the other. Frankly, it affects our personal, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. But it also tears at the very fabric of our society. Has it always been this way? Is there another way? When Jesus gathered his followers up on that mount, he starts out stating the conventional wisdom, what everyone would have known, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It had been that notion had been around forever, um, and it was universally accepted. It appears in the Bible three times, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. If something is taken from you, you must take something back. If someone cuts you off in traffic, by all means, lay on that horn and give him the one-finger salute. It won't do a darn thing except raise your blood pressure, but there you have it. You told them. Jesus knows the conventional wisdom, but instead he proposes another way. He says, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. And if anyone sues you for a coat off your back, give him your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go the second mile with a smile on your face. I reminded you a few weeks ago that the backdrop to the whole of the Gospels is the occupation of Israel by the Roman Empire. The people to whom Jesus was preaching were subject daily to abuse and oppression and violence at the hands of the Romans. They were insulted and humiliated and slapped, beaten, and killed, crucified, as all political oppressors will do to those who resist. The Roman soldiers were able to conscript anyone off the street to carry their heavy pack and equipment, but for one, mi one mile only. It happened all the time, and a Jewish civilian would have to drop whatever they were doing and walk a mile with that soldier. There were and are two ways for us, for them, to relate to oppressive authority. The first is to accept it and go along with it, to cooperate and capitulate. The leadership in Jerusalem did just that, the high priest and the Sanhedrin. They cooperated with Rome. The other way is 
active resistance. There were zealots and others during Jesus' day that advocated violent overthrow of the Romans. But here, I think, Jesus is proposing another way, a third way, a way of nonviolent resistance, which restores the identity of the victim and preserves the hope, at least, for reconciliation and peace. When a Jewish civilian was slapped in the face by a Roman official, instead of striking back, which would, of course, result in his death, Jesus was suggesting that he proudly offer his other cheek, something that no doubt profoundly changes that situation. Now he is not merely a victim, but he is a full human being and a child of God. When he resists nonviolently, he claims that dignity. Gandhi, who was a great student of Jesus' teachings, understood that dynamic and went on to build a nonviolent resistance movement in India, which did something that decades of armed rebellion could never do, namely the independence of India and the end to British colonial rule. And of course, Martin Luther King Jr. understood the power of nonviolence, violent resistance during the civil rights movement in this country. So Jesus tells this ragtag band on the hillside not to retaliate when someone harms you, but he takes it one step further. Again, he starts out with the conventional wisdom. You have heard it said to love your neighbor. But then he actually has the audacity to tell us that Not only do we have to love our neighbor, we have to love our enemies. I mean, that's a pretty hard row to hoe. It flies in the face of our human nature and our very culture. It's just not how the world works. I mean, can we do it? Can we love our enemies? Can we actually pray for those who persecute us? Don't we kind of love it? when our enemies get what's coming to them? How can we love them? Now, I want to offer two caveats. First, I think uh, I can speak for Jesus on this one. Neither he nor I are suggesting that anyone stay in an abusive relationship that offers mental, emotional, or physical harm. That is not what he was saying at all. And also, I also want to make it clear that loving your enemies or getting along with them does not mean that your enemy and you have equal claims to the truth. I want to stay away from that both sides-ism, you know, that notion that everyone has an equally valid point. I mean, Holocaust deniers and Holocaust survivors can't be equally true any more than climate deniers and eco-activists should have their arguments weighted equally. 
But you know, it's a good thing that Jesus did not tell us to like our enemies. Some of us grew up thinking that somehow God demanded violence as repayment for evil. We believed in a God that became filled with hatred when sinned against and violently destroyed enemies. Too often, we expect God to be like, like we are, right? We expect God's nature to be more like ours. But it turns out, it turns out that Jesus reveals to us that that is exactly the opposite of what God is like. Anne Lamott writes, if God, if the God you believe in hates all the same people you do, then you know you've created God in your own image. Loving one's enemies is not just something nice that God does, it is one of the non- negotiables of God's character. Loving is the very nature of God. This drives me crazy, Lamott says, that God seems to have no taste and no standards. <laughs> Yet on most days, this is what gives me hope. It gives us hope, I think, because none of us, not one of us, our enemies or us, is love because of what we do or don't do, because of what we did or didn't do. God's love for us or for our neighbor or for our enemy does not depend upon our good works and our perfection or our niceness or anything else. God sends both sun and, both sun and rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. No, you see, it's not because we have value that God loves us. It's because God loves us that we have value. Love your enemies not because it will make the world better or you yourself better, although it probably will, no, love your enemy because God loves them. We pray for our enemies not so God can change their hearts, although she may. No, Jesus intends for us to make a serious attempt to see our enemies from God's point of view. I love and I'm, I'm inspired by a story of a longtime preacher, an unforgiving Gettable character, Will Campbell, who passed away a few years ago. Campbell was a good old boy from the South, an unrelenting follower of Jesus. He was a son of the Deep South, a white Southern Baptist preacher raised in Mississippi, who betrayed his white privilege by following the gospel. He became a close friend of Martin Luther King Jr.'s and was the only white person present at the founding of the Southern Christian Leadership Coalition. His life was threatened repeatedly when the nine black school children walked through hostile crowds to integrate the public school system in Little Rock. Will Campbell 
was one of the four people by their side. And then with the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the man who had sent his ministry to help win freedom for blacks did something no one could imagine. He chose then to direct his ministry to the new lepers of society, the defeated, hooded enemies of integration, the Ku Klux Klan. So he would travel the byways of Mississippi sharing a bottle of bourbon with those whom many despise, the members of the KKK. He said that he had become a social activist without consciously choosing to be, and he would continue to be a social activist. But there was a decided difference. He came to understand the nature of tragedy. And he said that one who understands the nature of tragedy can never take sides. Will Campbell was not a hater. He was a reconciler who loved people all kinds and conditions of people, even his enemies. When asked to sum up the Christian faith in just a few words, he simply said in his iconoclastic way, and excuse my French, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. He confused his critics, first on the right and then on the left, by insisting that his soul did not belong to any team, racial, political, religious, or cultural. It belonged to the kingdom of God. There was only one team, and that was the family of all God's children, everywhere. Compassion came first in his hierarchy of values. Love was the only ethic he needed. It was the ethic that Jesus applies over and over again in his Sermon on the Mount. Martin Luther King echoes the statement in his famous words, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Amy Butler, who preached Jesus' own words from the entire Sermon on the Mount to her congregation, writes this about her experiment. She says, to be Christian in the way of Jesus, we will, in fact, have to swim upstream in today's American culture because we cannot change what Jesus had to say up there on that mount. We cannot change those hard words that tell us what it means to follow him, to live in God's kingdom, Share what you have with anybody who needs it. Love your enemies. Live generous lives. Tell the truth. Act toward each other the way God acts toward you. Sacrifice something big for something priceless. She adds, my guess is that Jesus came down from the mount for coffee hour that day, and several people told him that they did not like or agree with some parts of his sermon. That it just flew in the face of Middle Eastern culture to which they were accustomed. I can only surmise that Jesus looked them straight in the eye and said, yes, that's the point. Because friends, here is the good news. 
Sometimes we get to witness human beings act in surprisingly unselfish, compassionate, and courageous ways, counter-cultural ways. Here in this church, we see it every day, people revealing God's love over and over again in acts of forgiveness and unselfishness, in acts of humility and kindness and generosity, both within these doors and many more times outside of them. And whenever that happens, a little bit of the very kingdom of God breaks through and comes into being in our midst. Thanks be to God. Amen.